Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jeff Jackson, the Director of Intellectual Property Management at the University of California at Santa Cruz. At Santa Cruz, Jeff oversees invention disclosure intake, patent filing and prosecution strategy, the management of all aspects of their intellectual property portfolio, including outside patent and litigation counsel, and the implementation and execution of new systems and processes for intellectual property management. Jeff was most recently the senior patent associate at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, and prior to that, he was the intellectual property manager at the Translational Genomics Research Institute in Phoenix. Prior to becoming interested in working with intellectual property, Jeff had a 12-year career in biotechnology research in both the academic and industry settings. And with that impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Lisa. It's great to be here. Thank you again for taking part in the podcast. Really excited to have you here. So let's go ahead and kick things off at the beginning. Can you give us an idea of your background and ultimately what led you to tech transfer? Yeah, I, I have an origin story with regard to tech transfer. It's it's more interesting than it might be true, but uh, you know, there's there's some parts of it. Uh, I was working at Immunex Corporation in Seattle, which was a great biotech company. One of its main products was Enbrel, which the arthritis drug yep. that's you know still going really well. Very famous, yeah. Very famous drug. It came out of that group. I didn't work on it directly, but I worked on a number of other projects there. Uh, as you probably know, uh, Immunex was bought out by Amgen, and at the time, the um, the vice president of research at Amgen, Roger Perlmutter, who's interestingly, whose lab I had rotated through in graduate school, was uh, giving a talk to the the folks at, at Immunex. And Immunex, was, especially their Seattle group, was very, very research focused and really almost basic research. It looked a lot like an academic department. Anyway, Roger was talking to us and said, you know, we're not going to be doing much in the way of, of basic fundamental research here because that's being done at the universities. <laughs> and so what we'll do is we'll let the universities do that basic research and take from that and license in those technologies. I really didn't have much idea what he was talking about at that point in time, but I did know enough to say, you know what, I'm in research and maybe my uh, time in this in this field is is numbered. My days are numbered, and uh, you know, basically, I ended up being reorged on out of there. And uh, you know, eventually, through advice of other people as well, I I took a IP management course uh, at the University of Washington Extension. It was a great course. Uh, 
Dana Bostrom, I forget where Dana is now, but um, and uh, Chuck Williams at Oregon were instructors. And uh, one of the guest speakers actually was uh, was Jerry Barnett, who um, was the director of IP management at the University of California at Santa Cruz. So uh, small world. I, I now have his job. Oh, that's hilarious. Yes, yes. So ultimately, I I took this extension program and it was great. Uh, I I said this is fun, this is interesting, and it really fit well with my brain. So I went to law school, um, wanted to be a patent attorney, and then uh, really ended up landing at the Translational Genomics Research Institute in Phoenix. I had gone to law school at Arizona State University. So that's that's basically what brought me here. I've never worked in a law firm in my life. I've been in-house tech transfer patent professional and IP professional ever since. I have to ask the question, did you did you ever feel like you missed out on not being in a law firm for somebody who's been in a law firm her entire career? Not for a second. <laughs> That's fair. I don't granted and and I don't think any of you want me. I, I'm <laughs> I'm like feral and raised by wolves. So <laughs> okay. I think it's great for the university that that you didn't go that route. And it sounds like it's worked out pretty well for you. It's it's worked out really well. Um, basically, what you get is it's it's a different job. There's a different focus. And even when it comes to, say, drafting, because I've done drafting and and uh, and and prosecution internally before it, you know, it's just a different way of looking at it. And uh, and I I really like the way it panned out. So. Yeah, and it doesn't mean to say that just because you're not in the law firm and you are in a university tech transfer office. I I know a lot of patent attorneys who are, and they function similarly to law firms in terms of drafting and prosecuting. They just don't have the billable hour on some of the other law firm pressures. And again, like you said, it's a mindset and how you think and thinking from a different angle. So uh, I think there's some definitely some some benefits uh, for the university as well as yourself for that. So yeah. So your office is part of the University of California system. And for people who may not be familiar with the structure of the UC system, there's 10 campuses. I know you're at Santa Cruz, there's Berkeley, there's Davis, there's Irvine, there's Merced, which uh, I didn't realize until I, I checked is up near uh, Yosemite National Park. Yep. There's Riverside, San Diego, San Francisco, Santa Barbara. So huge number of campuses and then there's also five medical centers and three affiliated national laboratories. So just a, mm-hmm. a huge, huge system. You forgot LA. Oh, LA's <laughs> in there. Okay. Yeah. How could I do UCLA. that? Oh boy. I'm going to get emails now. I forgot LA. They're going to be big. I don't forget LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. So yeah, there's LA in there too. So According to what I saw online, the 2018 technology commercialization report for the University of California, I mean, it's just massive in terms of disclosures and filings and licensing. Uh, Just by way of example, I know there were 1,735 disclosures in 2018, uh, filed 1,900 applications, and there are about slightly over 12,000 active portfolios, at least at that time in 2018. I'm sure there are probably more now. In that year, there were 233 new licenses and 4,923 active licenses with uh, 93 new startups. So, I mean, it's just a huge, huge system to to be a part of with a lot of IP and a lot of licenses. It's, it's a lot going on. Yeah. So how does your office function within the UC system? Are you guys independent, quasi-independent? How, how exactly does that work? Do you guys share systems? 
Is there a lot of interaction between the various offices? It's complex. Basically, to start, we are independent with regard to decisions on patenting and licensing. Um, So whatever happens on the Santa Cruz campus, uh, our office has the uh, authority to file patent applications and licenses. There are functions that are handled by the, uh, uni- the University of California Office of the President in Oakland. They have a group of a tech transfer group, a patent prosecution group. They help us out a lot. They do our federal reporting. They do the, uh, some of the document management and your reports. Uh, they do the finances, which is key. Ultimately, without UC Office of the President, we would probably require on the order of two to three additional full-time employees here. And because we have UC Office of the President, we can function uh, a lot more cheaply than we would otherwise just being a small office and trying to get everything done. So we're heavily reliant on them. We do have a system for finance, for maintenance fees, uh, and for, for billing. We do use those. Uh, different campuses will uh, not use some of the UC Office of the President services. The bigger campuses, they have more. They have more funds. They have more systems. Uh, as far as docketing goes, we tend to do that here on campus. I can talk about that system later. Sure. So, just a quick question on that: If they handle, let's say, Bidol reporting. Do you just enter a disclosure that comes in or a new record or something like that and your systems are harmonized and systemized that they know and they know, okay, this was this disclosure references having federal funding. So we need to, you know, uh, make sure we report NI Edison or how does that work? Uh, how it works, how we have it is we have our disclosure form and I it comes to me. I review it. Uh, I print it and I forward it to the the patent prosecution group there who does the iEdison reporting. And if there's something specific um, to tell them, I will add that. For example, one thing that happens a lot at the UC is that we we require disclosure from our inventors, but disclosure does not necessarily mean ownership if it's not using funds, if it's uh, not using facilities and if outside the course of course and scope. So sometimes they'll be requesting an ownership determination. And I will let the, for example, if that comes in, I'll let the the patent prosecution group know that so that, you know, they won't send an acknowledgement back to the inventor or number of other things. So, you know, I basically it's an open communication where we're, we do put some thought. It's not just an upload to their, uh, to their group. We put some thought and some analysis into what we send to them. Got it. That makes sense. So in terms of how your office is structured, it it sounds like based on what you're saying, you're not cradle to grave like a lot of other tech transfer offices at all. Yeah, we based on so based on our size and based on um, the the personnel we have and uh, some of the issues of working at Santa Cruz, uh, we've structured our office into two separate groups. So there's my group, which is intellectual property management. And you at the beginning, you went into what we do. But generally, we look we look internally to campus uh, for prospecting for new disclosures and then management of the intellectual property. Uh, then we have an industry alliances and licensing group, which is headed by my colleague Andrea Pesce. Uh, Andrea came from 
Stanford's OTL at the same time that I came here. So uh, Andrew's group looks outside of campus at finding potential industry partners who are interested in supporting our technology. And her responsibilities are any time along the technology development process. So from initial funding, industry-sponsored research, uh, consortium memberships, onto uh, licensing, and then also she does a lot with regard to our incubators and startups. I see. Okay. So it's kind of that type of division of kind of labor, so to speak, if you will. In your bio, one of the things I talked about was that you have experience implementing and executing new systems and processes for intellectual property management. Have you done that at Santa Cruz? I'm assuming you have. And, and can you talk a little bit about what you've, you've done and how well it's worked out for you? The two things that have worked for us is um, we set up a invention disclosure form that uh, is a you're probably the most basic online invention disclosure form possible. We set up a Google form and uh, put in some very basic programming, like if you know somebody says yes to this question, they skip the next one, things like that. Before that, we were the typical paper or word form that you know had to be signed by multiple people, oh, yeah. uh, delivered delivered to us by carrier slug. A long process, and a month and a half later, it finally ends up on your desk. Yeah, pretty much. This one, it is just you know at the very least. The important thing is it gets the questions in. There's drop-down menus and, and radio buttons, and they can upload documents, and then they can hit send, and then we get it. Those are the main features. Those are about all the features we have. It's it's not slick at all, and I I you know I'd be willing to send my PDF of it and show somebody uh, kind of show it to somebody if they if they want me to take them through it. Um, but it also allows some UC specific things, like it allows somebody to request an ownership determination, like I mentioned earlier, or say that this is software and we're looking to put it out under open source. So it does bring in all the information we need and a lot of what we don't. I mean, we don't, for example, you know, in terms of their uh, office phone number, division and department, we can look that up. And so we we don't make them go through all of that. Um, so there's there's not, and then we do an electronic signature like they do at the patent office with the forward slash, right, 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 for, forward slash. Um, you know, basically it just was important to get more disclosures in the door. Right. And you've made it very easy for the faculty to do that now without having to, you know, spend a lot of time typing and going through every question. If it's obviously skipping questions, you're trying to make it as efficient as possible for them. Yeah, exactly. Um, but forces them to to type something in every section that we need. So there's that too. The other thing we've implemented is, and you know, I have no affiliation with this company, but we brought in some uh, docketing software. Uh, from an, a group called Docket Track, it's been an absolute lifesaver. It's generally, I think, meant for smaller law firms, um, but you know, there's enough um, functionality, and we can cannibalize enough fields that it works for our purposes. It's not very customizable, but that's fine. Um, we're able to get exactly what we need. It sets up the dates easily, accurately, and quickly. Uh, there's, you could do a little bit of programming to do office, to make sure you have office actions like that. It'll make an Excel spreadsheet of the upcoming docket relatively quickly. And uh, it's, it's just 
generally pretty easy to work with. And with the idea that the fact that it's 75 bucks a month, uh, you know, with in terms of the time savings compared to, say, running your docket on an Excel spreadsheet. Wow. $75 a month. That's OK. So that, it's almost free. I mean, that's, yeah, that's probably one of the most reasonable docketing programs I've ever heard of. Yeah. Like you said, it's not really customizable, but it sounds like for your purposes is working just fine. Yeah, my uh, uh, some of my colleagues at UC San Diego turned us on to that. It's just, it's it's fantastic for what it is. I mean, yeah, it doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles, but again, we're we're backed up by outside counsel, so it's not, you know, it's not extremely high stakes, but it's, um, you know, it is definitely more than good enough for what we need. So those are the two things we've we've brought in and integrated into our system, and you know, for. You know, one is free and one is seventy-five bucks a month. So, um, you know, it's it's doing pretty well for us uh, for the volume that we have. Yeah, it sounds like it's worked really well. Yeah. Well, switching gears a little bit, um, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the Bayh-Dole Act, and I wanted to see if you could reflect a little bit um, on what your thoughts are that uh, on in terms of the impact that the act has had on innovation in the U.S. and particularly universities and whether or not you'd advocate for any changes in Bayh-Dole. It's the type of legislation that doesn't seem to happen anymore. Uh, it's, you know, when it's completely nonpartisan and it and it's really just straight up solving a problem, which, you know, the idea being that you can better understand your technologies at a university than at a federal funding agency. I mean, it's it was a simple solution that's really and had a massive impact on innovation. Um, and I think it's really it's really pushed a lot of universities, more, some more than others, I would say, and some individuals more than others. But I think it's, you know, I think it's had a lot, it's had a lot of impact, obviously. And there are a lot of people who could speak a lot more eloquently on that than me. Um, I'd say, you know, I will give a shout out to my, uh, friend Dennis Hansen at Commotion at the University of Washington for for this. Uh, he'll probably listen to this eventually. We'll see. Uh, but Dennis said the Bayh-Dole Act is effectively an unfunded mandate. You know, we are required by all these funding agencies to um, take on the uh, patent prosecution and licensing of all this wide variety of technologies. And a major issue with them, obviously, is that they're all really early. Nobody to the point where there are very few no-brainers that come into our offices in terms of things being ready to go uh, as a as a product. Uh, so you know, it's these take a lot of time to handle and incubate. And this is coupled, of course, with the idea that people who are inventing these also need to graduate and raise grant funding and get new jobs and be promoted and get tenure and the like. So the idea of uh, of inventing, it's a difficult thing for them to integrate into what the other things they've got going on and these more immediate issues that they've got going on. So some funding from something from the funding agencies that's earmarked for the tech transfer, especially in light of the fact that they're really starting to care a lot about what happens to these inventions going forward would be extremely helpful. I think in in any office and especially in offices like like ours who we haven't had our big hit yet. You know, some I've worked at may 
they've been there, been around for years and haven't had their big hit. Uh, some, some never, maybe some offices never will. That's the main thing is we need to have some support for doing this thing. Uh, and sometimes the, the royalties aren't going to be able to get us there. Or they may not come for years. And and that really yeah. is an excellent point. And I hear that from a lot of smaller universities or universities, like you said, like yourself, who haven't had that big hit yet. And I've seen in some states, I spent a lot of time in North Carolina, there's like the North Carolina Biotechnology Center and other some other institutions, and I think some other states have them, where they will put or be able, if there's a, a professor or a PI who has an invention and it, it looks like it might be a startup they will provide some of that funding kind of, I, I don't want to say bridge, but that's the only word that's coming to mind at the moment, kind of bridge to do some more research, to do proof of concept, to try and help the tech transfer office out and be able to, you know, kind of nurture that invention along. So there, there is a startup to spin out of it. But but that is a huge problem. Like you said, given the volume of disclosures, I think people in tech transfer offices get, the offices get themselves. And they're so new and, and you have limited information, little bit limited time and resources, you know, how do you deal with it? And, and that is a huge, I think it's a huge issue. And I think Dennis said it really, really well. Mm-hmm. So how about, let's talk a little bit about patents and litigation since uh, that flows nicely from Baidol. How do you guys vet disclosures? It, it sounds like you get a fair number of them. And like you just mentioned, you get them very early and it's hard sometimes to make those decisions. Do I file, don't I file this too early? Is this not ripe yet? Um, you very rarely see, like you said, anything that's ready for patenting as, as we like, as patent attorneys like to say. Yeah. Ultimately, we're at a point in my office where we're trying to be much more service oriented than the office was in the past. And part of that involves uh, when somebody comes to us asking for a patent application to be filed is we should look at it with the idea that we're going to file a patent application on this and we're going to figure out what claims we can get out of it rather than, and I've had this mindset in the past, what are we going to do to blow it up? The idea of a, a massive search is sometimes uh, doing things like searching. Um, I've been very right on searches in the past and I've been very wrong. And, you know, sometimes I find a piece of uh, a piece of art that absolutely, completely, I show it to any attorney. It's like, I've got this reference and these claims and these, this absolutely blows these out of the water, right? They go, right. One of, I did one of those once uh, and the application was allowed without objections over this absolutely yeah. flat killing art. And I'm just, Been at that there. point, I'm just like, I don't know anymore. No. I really don't know anymore. Been there, done that. It's the worst. Yeah. I mean, and of course it goes the other way where yep. where I've got, you know, I've got some solid claims that I've looked at the art really hard and I'm pretty sure I can, this is my way around these. And, uh, you know, I've I've really pushed off of the, you know, I'll push off of the art and get something that I think is well clear of it. And they'll, they'll fight me hard on that. So ultimately, it's a little bit like, uh, like if you're arrested, they say, you know, don't tell your story except for in court. Uh, it's, it's almost coming to the same thing that we want to fight it out in front of the patent office sometimes. And uh, that's, that's largely where we've been. So that's been fairly common for us. 
I have to share, that's been my experience too. Trying to gauge patentability. I, I've had some where I'm like, oh, this is clearly patentable. And then we just can't get it through the patent office. And then, like you said, you know, I mentioned it's the worst. You tell a client, I don't think this is patentable and, and you're probably not going to get anything through. And then you, they're like, well, I want to try. I'm okay spending the money. They file and they get a first action allowance. It's like, yeah, you, you feel like you look like an idiot, right? Exactly. Either way, you look like an idiot. You don't know what you look like. You don't know what you're doing. So it, it's very frustrating. And I mean, it happens to every, anyone who who's in that same position. So oh yeah. how about foreign filing of these applications? That's always a hard call for university tech transfer offices because of the costs involved. I mean, it's pretty reasonable to do PCT, but when you get to the 30 month national stage and you're looking at those big translation costs, how do you guys handle that? Um, do you do like a lot of typical universities? You know, if you have a licensee, you'll see what they want to do and do the national phase. Or is it if you have no licensee, you pretty much enter the U.S. and that's it? Generally, we enter the U.S. and that's it um, if there's no licensee. And I've been looking at that and, you know, going back one one step. I've been at the point where I've been questioning, especially in a lot of cases, whether to even file a PCT, um, just because we have so many unlicensed cases that go uh, provisional PCT uh, US only. And what did the PCT do but add about $8,000 in patent costs that either uh, probably a startup licensee is going to have to pick up or we're going to have to eat or it will get in the way of, uh, of revenues coming back to the inventor. So you know, and and in many cases, I've I have filed uh, foreign applications on spec without a licensee for particular cases, and I have to say that it's been I can't even think of a time when one of those has been licensed. Um, I've there have been plenty that we had U.S. Uh, where we had U.S. rights only, and those have been licensed, but it's really difficult. You know, I think it's that price tag that just makes it very difficult for a company, especially a smaller company, to be able to swallow that big patent cost that they know we're going to need to get reimbursed. So it's been something we've been doing is, you know, we do draft full provisional applications uh, to the extent we can. You avoid the cover sheet provisional type of thing. We do our best. Sometimes it's nobody's fault. You know what I mean? You get something two days before disclosure. There's nothing you, anybody can do in those. Exactly. But but it sounds like when you have the time available to you, you make the most of it and doing kind of the best provisional you can under the circumstances. Yeah. And ultimately when we do that, you know, I, and again, with our increased service orientation, when I do file full provisional, I generally commit to the inventor that we're going to take this to a first office action in the U.S., uh, I don't promise anything else, but I promise we'll take it to a first office action in the U.S. before we drop it. Again, because, you know, once the patent office weighs in, uh, you know, it's it can be a little more difficult uh, or easier to justify. I mean, if we get those claims, we get a patent and everybody's happy. And if we don't, we, you know, we talk it over and, you know, we we try to you know, that provides a really good spot at which to decide whether to take this forward or abandon it. Yeah, absolutely. At that point, you have something hard from the patent office and it either looks like there is going to be some negotiation to get something through or not. And then you can decide before incurring really significant costs. Yeah. I mean, and we fall at a lot of, we fall the same at a lot of universities, you know, 
that uh, most engineering cases just go in the U.S. only. Uh, if you happen to have a potential uh, therapeutic or other, you know, or other drug-related or widely potentially widely disseminated technology, you take a shot at the PCT, but see where it goes. Yep, definitely. What about things like post-grant procedures, IPRs, PGRs, interferences, or litigation? Have you guys had any of that there? And if so, what was your experience? Uh, we had a litigation that was, uh, it was funded by the licensee. So it was a licensed technology. And uh, it's a pretty, you know, it's a it's kind of a horror story for university tech, tech transfer. A graduate student in the lab took a technology and left and started his own company with it. We had already filed on that same technology. He was listed as an inventor. And so that would have been probably gone away easily, except for students' company was bought by a large multinational uh, corporation. Oh, it got really complicated fast. And uh, so our licensee and uh, large multinational uh got into got into it over this there was a lot involved in the in the litigation and a, and a settlement and i i had just started here and was putting together all these systems and uh you know my boss at the time was was largely handling all of that but the part that i was involved with was an interference and um lisa a lot of weird stuff happens here and this is one of them so we were working very closely with licensee council and our council trying to set up an interference based on the student's patent application. Uh, again, we had filed first and theirs had been allowed and it wasn't examined quite as well as ours was. So we uh, we had a more substantive examination. Some other art was found. Uh, we ended up fighting really hard getting this and getting those exact same claims allowed. And now here's the weird part. We got those claims allowed, but the examiner never called the interference. Really? And you tried to, you indicated and tried to provoke them with the examiner? Oh, goodness gracious, did we? Yes. The whole time. I've never heard of that because I've done that. I've provoked an interference and, and they're, you know, when you put it in, you know, black and white, they're supposed to provoke the interference. That is so weird. So we were just sitting there. Well, what do we do? Well, I think we just take it to issue, don't we? go, yep. And so there we are. Wow. So we just, we, we were, you know, we had a bunch of very serious uh, patent prosecution minds sitting around the table and we had, it's like, I guess we just pay the issue fee and call it. And now we have a, now we have a patent with an earlier, with an earlier uh, filing date than theirs. Has anything happened subsequent to that? Has there been any other litigation involving it or no? No, no, we're, we've had a, we we generally settled with a with that was largely a couple of non-asserts uh, against each other. So not involving this one, interestingly. So we, we've uh, the licensee has largely been quiet on this. So that's when the licensee is funding. It was an easy call for us. Generally, when it comes to our own litigation, uh, we generally have to run that by the office of the president and their extremely talented attorneys there. Uh, and ultimately what that happens, what happens with that is it's a cost benefit. Sure. You know, and, and if we can't convince them that it's a good idea, uh, then they're not going to fund it. Um, 
we if it falls back to the campus, then it could be a campus decision on whether to fund it or not. And, you know, that would take a, and I would say that if UC Office of the President didn't want to fund it, campus would be, would be even less likely to. I was going to say that that's an uphill battle. If the Office of the President's not going to fund it, good luck trying to convince them there on campus to fund it. I, I don't see any way. I've talked to uh, Rita Howe at Office of the President a lot about this. And she does say that uh, it does happen that campuses will do it. And especially if especially if they've had royalties uh, based on, especially if they have a, a royalty fund, they're more flexible with regard to that. They can, they can take more of these on. Yeah, to be able to pay for it. Yeah. How about some of your office's biggest success stories? It sounds like you've had some come out of the uh, biomedical engineering based on what we've talked about to date. Yeah, so we have our, our biomedical engineering department is our intellectual property powerhouse. They are about 90, I think I calculated it. They were 97% of our royalties. Wow. Technology out of electric and computer engineering is is second place with, with the 3% and the rest of campus is... Uh, tied for third with zero. And I'll, I might tell that to the chemistry and biochemistry chair and say, you know, you're tied with English literature. So <laughs> I'm sure he'll love that. I'm sure he'll love that. Yeah, exactly. Actually, yeah, there'll, there'll be some other chairs I could, I'd be more likely to tell, tell about that. So, uh, you know, one, uh, David Hausler, who's uh, probably our most senior scientist, he's, a, he's an HHMI fellow and, and you know, was uh, deeply involved in the first assembly of the human genome back in 2000. Uh, they were part of the group that was uh, fighting it out with uh, TIGR, uh, if you're familiar with that. Uh, his group developed, separately from this, they developed these Bam Bam and Paradigm software products that they compare biomolecule sequence data um, from diseased tissues with those of normal tissues in the patient setting. Uh, they did a nice startup out of that, and that startup was acquired by a much larger concern, and that's going now. It's generating some decent royalties, so uh, that's a pretty decent success story. Ed Green, who has been in the news recently, actually, uh, if you read up, uh, he was involved in some of the in doing some of the sequencing that was done in collaboration with the folks that did the genealogy to capture the. Golden State Killer. Oh, he was. Okay. Yeah. And so he's been involved with that. And there there may or may not be some intellectual property uh, surrounding some of those techniques, but uh, that are that are in process. I can't tell you either way, but um, he's got a number of nucleic acid prep procedures and then some sequence analysis uh, scripts that are really good at uh, providing more efficient sequencing of degraded samples and then uh, and being able to identify them. Ed comes from the paleogenomics group at um, Max Planck Center. So he he's very, you know, the idea, they've been working with ancient DNA for a really long time. He has been. And so the idea of degraded DNA went over to forensics and other things rather easily. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. And he's, you know, the, his stuff is not all focused on forensics either. It's just, there's a lot involved with just much more efficient sequencing of genomes quickly and for kids involved with that. And then our, our big, the one that's likely to be our big hit um, is uh, from 
the mentors are Mark Akeson and Dave Deemer, and they've worked in collaboration with some groups at Harvard uh, for a long time uh, on nanopore sequencing technologies. The main contribution, I think, uh, that Mark and Dave have made was the idea of slowing down the biomolecules that's going through the nanopore. So the idea is the nanopore is charged. Uh, on one, There's a charge differential between one side of the nanopore and the other. And so as a biomolecule is passed through, it will alter their charge. It'll tweak it. And those changes in charge can be mapped then to the, uh, the nucleic acid or protein residue. That's a hot area right now. I've, I've actually been involved in some clients have looked at different aspects of nanopore. So yeah, it's a, it's a very popular area right now. Oh yeah, it's, it's big. And you know, their main, their main contribution was the idea of putting a, a enzyme on top of the nanopore to slow down the molecules it's going through. So these uh, inventions are incorporated into Oxford nanopores, uh, min-ion sequencer and some of their related sequencers. Well, that's pretty impressive. Three very impressive ones. So yeah, and we got more coming. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's awesome. So you talked a little bit about funding challenges that your office has, and um, I'm assuming the other one I get when I ask people about challenges at their offices, I, I funding is by far universal. I'm suspecting for you guys, it's probably retention too. That's that's another common one that I've heard. Retention is retention and hiring are are existential to us. I think in a recent survey, Santa Cruz, California is the fifth most expensive place to live in the world. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Yeah. And uh, that's why our you know, everybody might have heard that our grad students are on strike. It's largely due to extremely high rents in town. Uh, and I don't blame them. I, I feel their pain completely. So the idea of coming here for um, really not a, a salary that's not in line sometimes with the rest of the UC even is a tough thing to pull off. Got to be very challenging to do. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea of hiring somebody here has been really tough. So to, you know, if somebody's highly experienced, they're going to command a higher salary. If somebody's, but if somebody's, uh, you know, doesn't have as much experience, we can't pay them as much and they can't live here. I mean, we'd love to try to bring somebody in and grow them. And we're working on that. Um, but, you know, it's just too difficult for them to come here, especially when there's a lot of other stuff that's available. There's a lot of other jobs available. Have you guys looked at, you know, for some positions now, possibility of working remotely from another location, or is that just too difficult? We have one person who's working remotely. It is not, um, well, everybody's working remotely now, of course, but... Uh, thank you, coronavirus. Thank you, coronavirus. Yeah, which also canceled autumn, where we were hoping yes. to be doing this out near the beach, but didn't yes. really work out. I'm still near the beach, Lisa, so... I'm in Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. It's called a lake. I, I am up. I am up a hill with a beautiful view of Monterey Bay. No, that's just mean. That's just mean. Actually, my office has no windows, but of course, I'm not going to get coronavirus that way. So there's, there you go. There's that. So we have one employee here who does work remotely, uh, but that's highly unusual, and it's a difficult sell to our vice chancellor of research. Uh, and I'd, I'd say, especially when it comes to the job of IP management. Um, we need to be here. We need to be present. 
we need to be meeting with inventors. We need to do outreach. Um, you know, we need to, if somebody wants to meet about something, we need to be there. Yeah, for people in your position, it's virtually impossible. I, I've talked to some other IP managers at other universities, and they just say, you know, they've got to do education. And like you said, you know, PIs will walk over, they'll want to meet, they'll want to chat, they'll want to sit down. So yeah, for people in your position, I think that's difficult. I was just wondering if there might be other positions that you need help with that could be done remotely. Yeah, we have a contracting or a person who does uh, industry agreements. So MTAs, NDAs, uh, industry-sponsored research agreements, he's, he's remote. But again, that was an unusual situation. So um, it's, it's difficult for us to justify. Yeah, yeah, understood. Now, we mentioned a few moments ago, we were talking about how we were hoping, well, at least I was hoping you're on the beach now, hoping to be on the beach at, yes. at Autumn National in San Diego. But due to the coronavirus, our, our plans were thwarted. What is your view on Autumn and some of the other organizations that are available to tech transfer offices in, in your mind, do they add value? What, what's your thought on that? I think the, the big value that Autumn provides is, is two things. Uh, it's, it's a hive mind, you know, it allows you to network and meet up with other people in who are working in this space, you know, and to see if somebody has already done something in the situation has already been in the situation you're in. You know, we we all tend to come from, nearly all of us come from scientific backgrounds. So um, those of us who were who were more about getting uh, a result, you know, we didn't really want to invent a new way of doing something when you can look it up and and figure out the answer and then do it, uh, and then have your answer. Uh, so you know, Autumn is useful for that. Is knowing enough people who have seen enough stuff that we can, so that we can, uh, uh, you know, take more prudent actions, um, you know. And then the other piece, I think, it, with the networking and having friends is you, you're just, you're at most two degrees, one to two degrees of separation from pretty much everybody else uh, in, in university technology management. So, you know, Ultimately, what I've seen is if we're in, if we have a joint invention with another university, it just, there's a, there's a level of trust and there's a, just a level of helpfulness. that's just a lot easier to have if you've known somebody, if you had lunch with them once or, or a friend of a friend of them, uh, you can, you can just get on the phone and say, Hey, okay, we've got this joint invention. Uh, we'll take, you know, we'll take patent prosecution. Um, you know, we'll do an IIA when, when uh, you know, if we get a licensee involved. And everybody, yeah, that sounds great. Okay, and so you know, to to grease those agreements and make those things happen is a really useful thing to have because um, I get asked by a number of inventors. You know, oh, what happens if I'm collaborating with someone over here? Is that yeah, a problem? Yeah. Should I? I'm just like, no, collaborate with anybody you want. Do whatever, you know, however it works out, it works out. We'll be fine. We'll do a deal with them. It'll be invisible to you. You don't even need to worry about it. So just work with anybody you want to work with. And, you know, that's, there's a lot of assurance with, with that. And, you know, I, I believe that's a, that's a major value. You know, those two things are major values of autumn. And then what we also have is we have a, uh, the UC system has uh, IP managers meetings twice a year. Oh, nice. 
Yeah. Once at a campus in Northern California, once at a campus in Southern California. We alternate. Oh, sweet. We were going to Irvine in May, but that might not happen now. So, uh, but yeah, we, you know, we hosted a, a, about a year ago. We did it at our Silicon Valley campus, which was good to show them, but I think everybody was a little disappointed they didn't get to come to Santa Cruz. So uh, that's a, that's extremely useful. And it it's a deep focus on problems that we're having at the UC and and uh, that are and there's a big focus on UC policies and what we're planning to do. Because one of the disadvantages of being in a system it's it's a, it's it's simple, but uh, you can see where this happens and where it's a big problem is if we've got a term in a contract or a, a sponsored research agreement or whatnot, and um, you know the the other side comes back to us well. UCLA agreed to that. Yeah, inconsistent terms and agreeing to different things. Yeah, that could be a huge problem. Yeah. Granted, it's really easy for us because we have the IP managers meeting to call them at UCLA and say, did you agree to this? And I said, no, of course not. So, it's, you know. Yeah, I could see where that if that started, uh, you went down that path, it could be a huge problem for the system. So it makes sense that you guys meet periodically and have conversations and make sure you're keeping things consistent. Yeah, and it's, I really appreciate it, you know, just being in the system for three years. I've been people have been here for forever. It's really rapidly accelerated my knowledge of the ins and outs and comings and goings of this of the system. So it's a very valuable thing for people to just for people to get together and meet periodically. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I usually always end these podcasts by asking people if they had three wishes, you know, if you had a genie in a bottle for your office, what, what would your three wishes be? I think I, I know one of them would be funding. Well, that's everybody. So yeah, you it know, is. that's, it's everybody's wish. What I think my, I'll put my big wish is that I'd like to, I'd like this to be some somewhere where the research people involved in the research enterprise think of what we do in tech transfer as an integral part of, of what they do. Now, as we said before, Grants and publications win. They're they're king. They're huge. And if our royalties ever exceed our grant funding, we're in big trouble. So, um, you know, those are those are important. We know where we fit with regard to that. But to be at least a little, have a little part of their lab group funding plan to be part of what we do. Be it would this be something that I could get industry to fund? Or alternatively, is this an invention that I that I might need to submit? And just to ha- be more front of mind with regard to those people in the research enterprise. Yep, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, that's my big big wish. Uh, and then that we're there to help, and then we have the tools, and we have things set up again to assist uh, not just the entrepreneurial faculty, but the you know more risk averse faculty. And then also graduate students, postdocs, and you know, to some extent undergraduates as well. We don't own their IP generally, but uh, you know, to be able to have them go out and, and start companies and do things, it's it's really uh, that'd be something else we could I'd really like for us to have. And and you know, ultimately, it's this: UC Santa Cruz. We do not have a tackle football team. <laughs> We're never going to have a tackle football team. I would like for innovation, entrepreneurship, technology, uh, commercialization to be our football team. I want the university to get a sense 
the sense of pride that other people get from their tackle football team, they have it here. That's great. And it's something that they're proud of and can talk smack to other people about. And, uh, you know, but, you know, that's an uphill battle. So uh, that would be that would be the the ultimate if we could get there. That's a great wish. Yeah, that's a great one. I, I really like that one a lot. So that's Good. that's a great one. So, well, Jeff, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? I'm pretty accessible by email. I'm on it all the time, except for during this podcast. That's good to know. Yeah, I'm at Jeff Jackson, J-E-F-F-J-C-K-S-O-N, all one word, at ucsc.edu. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you so much again, Jeff. It's been great to have this opportunity to talk to you. We really appreciate it. Take care. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.